Welcome back to our growing experiment. We're here with Fiona from the Flour Mill Community Farm. Fiona, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and the farm? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so uh, the Flour Mill Community Farm is a, an urban farm in Sudbury. Uh, it was established in uh, 2017, um, but the idea had been floating around, I think, for a couple of years prior. And in 2016, that's when community consultation started in the Donovan Flour Mill area to see if, uh, you know, neighbors and people living there were interested in, in housing like an urban food initiative. Um, it was based off of a model uh, in Thunder Bay called Roots to Harvest, which was another urban agriculture project. It's still uh, running and they're amazing. They're doing all sorts of cool stuff out there, uh, but it's a, very, it's a youth employment um, project. Uh, so uh, offering opportunities to youth um, to come and learn how to grow food and it's their first job. So they're getting employment training skills and um, you know, social social skills development and and then learning about growing food, which is like super important. So um, the flour mill community farm is housed at uh, the Social Planning Council of Sudbury. So that's the organization um, that runs it. And yeah, so we're located right in the Rhine Heights neighborhood next to the Rhine Heights playground. Um, there's like an underutilized green space there was just kind of a not so fertile looking, you know, lawn sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And um, the city gave us a land agreement. So we brought in, you know, we've probably brought in like five dump trucks full of soil over the years um, and just trying to build the soil there and expanding every year. And uh, yeah, so we hire youth every summer to come and grow food with us. And uh, yeah, that's about the urban farm, yeah. <laughs> And so what was the, like the impetus behind this? What was the, the real idea that, that made you think like this, this is something we need to do here? Yeah, well, there, there was a gentleman uh, named David Dubois and he, he lived in the Donovan and he was like so passionate about um, providing opportunities to youth and uh, supporting, you know, uh, more empowered and uh, better positive outcomes for youth, you know, living in that neighborhood specifically. <laughs> Um, and he was so passionate about food. Like he just loved food, uh, loved talking about food and cooking. And, um, and so he, you know, was, uh, tied to the social planning council of Sudbury, you know, was involved in some of the, those sort of other outreach initiatives. And so that, um, kind of, he was a big driver and, um, you know, the reason behind it is we, you know, urban farming is like pretty necessary, <laughs> um, I would say, and it's like a growing movement and we're seeing it, you know, all over the place um, in different big cities. Um, and uh, so it would just seemed like it was the time for Sudbury, I guess. And we had Thunder Bay being our, our big uh, sister up there uh, running their programming. And it was so successful there um, that it just, you know, it seemed like just a really cool idea. And um, it aligned with my sort of journey into farming. I was born and raised here in Sudbury um, and left to go down to Toronto for university and spent way too much time in university and too much spent too much money. Um, and then from there, I headed to Peterborough and went to college for sustainable agriculture. And I never ever thought I would move back 
to the north. I was kind of done with it when I left. And uh, but then farming really shifted everything, um, my perspectives on everything. Uh, and and I, I did a placement as part of my, my program up north at a farm called Field Good Farms, which is just in Cache Bay. Um, and that sort of, you know, changed my life uh, for the better and saw like, okay, you know, like the growing season up north isn't that much different than the Peterborough area. Like there's a couple weeks on either side in terms of first and last frost, but with season extension, we can get away with so much up here. Um, and then I saw like, okay, this, I moved back in 2014. And at the time there was very few uh, ecological small scale farms. Um, like it seems to have, you know, it's growing exponentially here now. Mm -hmm. uh, but at that time, you know, there was really, Daylu was running a vegetable CSA and Field Good was, and uh, nowhere, nowhere really around the just Sudbury proper was doing it at that point. So I was like, okay, like, I'm going to come back to Sudbury and I, I just felt like it was the best way that I could make change in, in the world and to my community was to get into farming and food and for so many reasons but uh, anyway so I don't uh, have land there's no land in my family we're you know not farm uh, not a farming family my grandparents were um, from farming families but they all left to come to urban cities and urban centers and uh so this opportunity to run an urban farm aligned with me coming back to the community and like wanting to farm, but not sure how to. And uh, so it's just all aligned really nicely. Yeah, that's a, that's a nice sort of uh, happenstance where it's like, you know, your, your sort of life has taken you in a certain direction. And then <clears throat> basically you kind of get what you need for the next step, right? Which is a piece of land to, to put your ideas to work. And so, when you went to school in, in Toronto, uh, what made you start to get interested in, say, agriculture? Uh, a lot of people, in my experience, when they go to Toronto, they like Toronto because it's a, it's a big city. There's the city life. There's lots going on there. So what in that environment gave you a call towards returning to the soil, let's say? Yeah, uh, it was a, a personal like health issues actually brought it there. I, I had like a really bad... Uh, I was silly in my early 20s and, you know, was living the downtown Toronto life. I wanted to be fancy and spend all the money and whatever. So I had for my 23rd birthday, I decided I wanted to like bleach my hair to like Gwen Stefani level white and uh, for people. And so I ended up with a chemical sensitivity, uh, like so hyper sensitive. And after that, I was waking up like every day with full body hives, like all over me every day. It was so uncomfortable. And so I had to switch everything I was doing. So I had to eliminate products, shampoo, like deodorant, acne medication, toothpaste, all these things I had to completely get rid of and switch to something like hundred percent natural or organic. Um, but then I was still, I was still reacting to things. Um, and, and so then I started to turn to food and I started to like read the ingredients of everything I was eating. And because I had memorized all of the, or not memorized, but knew a lot of the things that were in my, you know, my body wash and my acne medication and whatever, I started to see that there was like stuff in my food that was like also in my acne wash. And uh, there was sort of this like moment where I was in Toronto in the grocery store and I was looking at an ice cream and there was like, there was like two ingredients in my ice cream or in the ice cream I was looking at that was also in my 
super chemically, you know, acne, <laughs> acne wash. And at the same time, my cousin was coming uh, to Toronto to stay with us and she had a share, she had a CSA share with Delu at the time. So they still had their vegetable box program. And they also, she was bringing their beef down and I'd never seen beef that color in my life, like grass fed beef. Wow, the color is like, you wouldn't ever know like what it was if you looked at it, if you're used to like the grocery store beef. And so I was like, wow, this tastes like, I've never tasted anything like this. And the food was so colorful and flavorful. And so my health uh, combined with this like amazing experience about food and sort of like this realization about where we're at in terms of our climate, uh, and stuff I was like I need to like learn how to grow food like now so it was kind of like a survival thing but also like this is how I think I can make changes to grow food so that's when it all shifted and so I'm thankful that I bleached my hair you know when I was 23 because if I hadn't I wouldn't be on this journey you know yeah, it's, it's kind of funny, like it reminds me of this proverb that I'm totally going to mess up, but the, the gist behind it is, is there's this farmer and uh, a bunch of stuff happens to him in his life and one thing will happen to him and his neighbors will say, oh, that's awful, this thing happened to you. He would say, you know, we'll see. And then it turns out like in the one example, it was like his son had broke his leg working on the farm with him. And like, that's awful. Now you got to do all this work by yourself. And then like a couple weeks after that, the 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 state come around basically looking to recruit people for the army, like a draft. And he couldn't go because his leg was broken. And they said, well, that's really lucky. And he said, well, you know, we'll see. And then a bad thing happens and a good and a bad. So anyways, I'll have to say that, you know, you're right. Bleaching your hair is really kind of what, what brought you along to it. And then the rest of it, it's like a necessity is sort of the mother of innovation, right? You got to start figuring out, you know, Hey, I'm in a sort of different paradigm than I thought I was how do I sort of adjust to this new reality, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, and I mean, I, I, I really want to ask you guys questions about your journey. Like, I, I don't know. Have you guys talked, have you done an episode about you guys, like how you guys got to this place? Uh, I think we've talked a little bit a little about bit. it here and there with people <laughs> yeah. during interviews. Yeah. Yeah. I, I usually talk too much about sort of why I think about this or why I think about that, but yeah, we usually focus a little bit on about what yeah. people are doing and yeah. Yeah. Just answer questions too, if people have them. Yeah. yeah but <clears throat> I think for us, uh, part of it in the beginning, at least was a lot of the idea behind like being a lot more self-sufficient like being able to take care of ourselves a little bit better, having more sort of uh, a well-rounded skill base. And then also too, when we started considering, you know, like, um, so like my wife's family's Portuguese. So they eat generally very healthy food in the sense that it's like, it's like meat and potatoes and vegetables. You don't get a lot of like other stuff on there. And so they always ate really healthy. And then, so I, I, I never really ate like that. Like where I went, like, when I grew up, we ate more like uh, I would eat fish sticks fairly often, let's say like frozen stuff like that or whatever, which is like, you know, you just grow up on it, you eat it, you don't think anything of it. But anyways, we got more used to eating like that. Um, we had kind of a drive to become more self-sufficient. We started considering, you know, like, you know, where does our food come from? Mm -hmm. What's the health of our food? And like, that's one thing too, when you start considering like, let's say uh, animals, right? When it comes to like, if you're going to be a person who decides to eat meat, it's like, well, where does that meat come from? Because you, you, you'll you hear all kinds of awful stories about these huge, agri or not agriculture, I guess, but huge uh, 
farms where they harvest all these animals and they're not having a very good quality of life. And um, for me, at least, and I think Sophia too, you know, we, we kind of believe like if that animal doesn't have a good life, it's not going to be the best food you can get. We kind of believe like, you know, a healthy plant makes healthy food, a healthy animal makes healthy food. Yeah. And I think the way that you best do that is you learn the appropriate environment and the sort of proper inputs and outputs that that animal needs or that plant needs. And you, it's like, to me, I, I like using the analogy of it's like a sort of a dance or almost like a marriage. It's sort of a give and take with nature and you're sort of learning what it is she does because she seems sort of chaotic to us as humans from our point of view. But once you really start to pay attention, it seems like she has a very uh, ordered way of doing things and you can kind of get into her rhythm and learn how things work. So uh, yeah, that's kind of a little bit of like our idea and why we got into it doing that kind of thing. Yeah. And I think something else, like I'm a very like action oriented person and you know, if you don't like the things, the way things are, like, I just hate having to complain all the time. Like you're not going to get anywhere that way. Right. So I think, you know, it came to a point where, you know, we were seeing how things were, we weren't happy about it. So we decided to make changes that we think are positive to kind of, you know, make positive lifestyle choices, kind of like what you did, right? Like step-by-step, you were able to make those choices going more natural and you see the outcome, you see like how beneficial it was. Right. And that's what we're doing as well as seeing the benefits from it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And yeah, I think we all, you know, we're all contributing to uh, a culture shift. Um, and uh, the more we can have these conversations and, and keep shifting things in, in the way, the best way we can. And uh, so that's what, you know, you guys are doing. And we're trying to do it at the urban farm. And mm-hmm. um, we're also, uh, there's, a, there's another initiative in, in, in uh, Sudbury called Global, Global Gardens. Um, and uh, so we, we have like, we welcome the group at the urban farm to do work. And we also, uh, there's a plot at the Delkey Dozy Community Garden, which is also where the, the food forest is there, which is uh, six years old now, six or seven years old. Um, the big, the big uh, edible forest garden, food forest. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have, there's like a big, a big circle garden there. And that's where Global Gardens um, is now starting to, to steward the land there. And the idea behind Global Gardens was, you know, um, it was initiated through two newcomers to Sudbury, um, Amir and Hamina. Amir grew up, is Egyptian, but grew up in Nigeria on a farm. And his partner, uh, Hamina, was from Mexico City. And they moved here and they wanted to learn how to farm in a northern climate, like Amir wanted to farm. Uh, but he was like, I need, to, I need to learn how to grow food here because like, the growing season is so, so much different. Um, and uh, there's there's a global roots garden um, in southern Ontario, which is a, a similar sort of thing. Like people from all over the world are learning to grow food here, and also like seeing if they can grow some of the foods from from back home here. Mm-hmm. Um, and so so anyway, through global gardens, we started talking to the indigenous led program at Better Beginnings, Better Futures, um, to Jeanette McQuabby and um, Dinesh Taylor, and from there we sort of decided you know, that this can be an initiative where like, you know, newcomers to Canada and Turtle Island and settlers and indigenous people can all come together um, and and grow food together and share in culture and, and gardening methods and all of these things. 
And so, you know, bringing people together and helping shift shift that culture um, in that way, because we're, you know, we know that we're in such a, a polarized time in terms of viewpoints and opinions and the pandemic, you know, has exasperated all of that. Mm -hmm. um, but we're, you know, we need to all come together <laughs> uh, more and more and more to try and shift some of these uh, systems and mechanisms that are so entrenched in the current system that are not serving any of us. Um, and so, so that's another initiative I kind of just wanted to, to talk about because that one's pretty cool. We have people from mm -hmm. all over the world coming together and it's, it's like awesome. Like people from Japan and Korea and India and Nepal and uh, Morocco and Africa and uh, Chile. Um, wow, when you get all of those people together and you're all there like doing the same thing, just like sharing in this love of gardening and connecting to land and understanding each other better. It's like, you know, we're, we're seeing things that have never been seen in a way, you know, I think. And it's just like, it gives, it's, there's so much hope in, in those things. There's so much hope in food and food sovereignty mm -hmm. movement um, and what you're doing. So it makes, yeah, it makes, it gives me a lot of hope in, in all of these times, you know, that we're experiencing. Yeah, and it must be interesting having all those cultures together too, right? Because gardening probably differs from one place in the world to another, where, you know, somebody from Japan or wherever else might be like, oh, we eat that. And we're like, oh, we don't. And then, you know, you're able to try something new and maybe something that was a, you thought was a weed you can actually use. And there's probably lots of benefits to learning, getting everybody kind of together, right? Yeah, yeah. It's been, it's been amazing. And I, I can't wait to keep for all of, just to keep coming together and learning from each other. Maybe you guys can come out too. That'd be awesome. Mm -hmm. some uh, yeah. Portuguese uh, knowledge <laughs> food food culture in there and uh, what's your background Jordan uh, so me uh, my dad's from Newfoundland um, his side of the family I think has been in Canada for a few hundred years uh, yeah. the earliest like Tizard which is my surname the earliest Tizard I could find goes back to like late 1600s in Twillingate so like in Newfoundland very early on um, and then on my mother's side, they immigrated much later, um, depending on which side, like which my, my, my mother's parents. But anyways, her family basically comes from uh, England, Germany, France. Like we did the, the 23andMe thing or whatever. Ancestry. And, sorry, that's what it was. Ancestry. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, that's, that's where a lot of her family comes from. With her history, we can trace a lot of hers back to like, say, England. And they were there in the 1800s and came over a little little later on. My dad's side of the family has been here a long time. And yeah, as far as like having any kind of like a culture thing, I always kind of thought of myself as like kind of newfie, even though I never grew up there. It was just because like my dad always played the music. We ate a lot of the sort of food they would eat there and that kind of thing. So that's that's probably like the most kind of culture I kind of got. Because otherwise, like I, I grew up in a, a northern community where... Um, it was, I don't, I don't know. It's, 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 it's not like a classic culture in the way it's like a small town culture. It's like, um, I don't know, I get corner gas kind of accurately sort of portrays a small town <laughs> feel in a way, or like a letter Kenny, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So, but yeah, like I, I, uh, I guess Newfie is, I guess what I would say for, yeah. for our, the, the, the biggest cultural impact on me. 
Um, yeah. But anyways, when, when you were talking about bringing all these different cultures together and the sort of times that we live in and stuff, that's that's the thing that I, I, I really think about a lot is like, you can hear a million reasons about why people don't agree or why they shouldn't be together or like there's there you you I mean if you look for a flaw or if you look for something wrong I mean you're gonna find it for sure and um, you know learning how to come together in a way where we can uh, work together find something that we share together and that's that's why I figured food which is adjacent to the the gardening or the farming or the or the uh, uh, the animal, the husbandry or whatever. Um, I saw that as being the, the, the perfect way to do it. Cause even if you go back and um, in like old traditions, like say in the Bible, you know, it was like a thing where if you invited someone over to your house, you made sure that they got like really good food. Like I remember there's one story where an unexpected guest shows up to this guy's house and he goes out and slaughters like his best cow. He goes out and gets the best food, the best oil. And this was a total stranger. And the idea was, is like, well, you bring someone into your house, you treat them really well, you treat them with respect. And the idea was, is you're kind of paying it forward, right? You, you treat someone good, you show, you show them a lot of respect, you show them a lot of um, gratitude kind of, and then it, it kind of comes back to you. And so that, that sounds like a good inroad to doing exactly that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, this started sort of like, well, during the pandemic, so we couldn't come together and like cook together, but I'm hoping now that we will be able to do some of that. And, uh, you know, maybe we'll hit up seasons, the kitchen there and do some, do some cooking there, or, uh, you know, there's other community kitchen spaces that we can access and like actually do some cooking all together as a group, you know, bringing together all these different dishes it's going to be delicious I think. <laughs> so excited <laughs> yeah well what really stood out to me about what you're doing too is just involving the youth I thought that was really great um so can you tell us a little bit about that yeah yeah so so uh we're we're so lucky to be able to work with the the YMCA so the YMCA has their like youth summer job connection program um and so through that they you know they get funding to to, to bring on a bunch of youth um, and then they're kind of placed in different different workplaces um, uh, and so um, we we bring them aboard through that through that like wage subsidy program um, and yeah so their their contracts are usually like seven or eight weeks and they're working 15 hours a week so we're not like you know pushing <laughs> pushing them really hard um, but we we're really really trying to educate them about food and food sovereignty and um, uh, and then we we run a little market booth too so we're running a market garden we're we're doing a lot we're producing a lot of food and uh, you know our our, farm, our our garden area is not not huge um, we're just I think it's probably the whole sort of area, including our walking paths and area where we're keeping our compost and shed and stuff. That's probably about 7,000 square feet, but in production, it's probably something like five, um, 5,000. Um, so, so it, it keeps them busy. And so we're, we're doing, we try to focus on foods that are producing a lot, you know, so zucchinis, like beans, peas, um, lettuce, carrots, these kinds of things. Um, and then, yeah, we do have a, a market stand every, every week. Uh, and we're tr- the whole, also the other point of it is to make like local ecologically grown food, 
uh, like accessible and affordable to the to people like living in the neighborhood, which is super important um, because we know sometimes organic food or ecologically grown food is pretty pricey. So we try not to charge more than like, you know, a dollar for for any of the items on our table. Um, and and we're sort of I'm sort of rethinking that model for this year too, just to see what we can do in terms of just getting the food out there. Like we we want the neighborhood to have to to eat that food if if they want it, if they want it. Um, and you know, in our in our little area there, there's a lot of uh, like co-ops and it was estimated like five years ago that there was 1300 kids living in there, 1300 kids. So I don't know if that's gone up or down, but still that's a huge sizable area and uh, uh, sorry, sizable area and si sizable population of kids. Mm -hmm. and, and they're so excited about coming and seeing what we're doing and stuff like that. So yeah, it's been really, really awesome to work with the youth. Um, we can rehire some of them for a second year um, so they can come back on as youth mentors. Um, and so they really get a sense of, of, of the food, you know, growing in and having that relationship. And um, a lot of them like then go on to start their own gardens at home or do container gardening or something, but uh, just really, you know, educating them about the food system because it's not really something we're learning in high school I didn't learn anything about the food system in high school I don't I think maybe we had a unit on like GMOs possibly um but like and farming was never introduced to me as like a career possibility like you know we'd have career days and we'd have people come in and talk to our class um but no one ever talked about farming <laughs> Yeah. And I think that's really great because I think about, you know, the fact that it's in that type of neighborhood where, you know, people could have access to that kind of food, I think is great because I think when people struggle to get food, you know, the, there's the food bank, which is great because it's food, but I worry about the nutritional value of the food they're getting, right? Like in lots of canned stuff yeah. and just the fact that you're there is more accessible for them. They don't have to go anywhere. Like, I think that's really good that for them to have access to nutritional food. Yeah, exactly. And it's sort of the conversation and difference between food security and food sovereignty. It's like food security is like, okay, yeah, we have enough food and it's distributed like efficiently, but the people receiving the food aren't defining their own food system. So in like food sovereignty, the people are defining their food system. So they get a say in how their food is raised and they get a say in how the people who are growing their food are treated and the land is treated and the water is treated and the trees around are treated and the air and like all the creatures like food sovereignty is very much that that's the core difference in that like that movement it's a global movement um just gives so much hope because it's it's it there's like pillars of pillars of food sovereignty and it's been developed by people all over the world you know over the last couple of decades and and um you know these pillars were were established by by farmers like peasant farmers small-scale farmers landless farmers indigenous people fisher folk like pastoral people um it's like such a cool movement um and i can send you some links for <laughs> the show notes and stuff but uh yeah so so that's the difference it's like you know i can go to the food bank and get what I get you know or I can 
be involved in this urban farm and like have a say of like, can you grow some more of these types of tomatoes? Cause I really like those for my pasta sauce or like, can you try and grow these horseradish or like, you know, they get a say and they also know the people who are working. They know that we're getting <coughs> treated well and we treat the youth uh, well who are working. And so it's like this, uh, it's a very empowering way of being and eating and uh, yeah. Well, and then the other interesting thing too, with that idea of food sovereignty and uh, having people basically being able to have more say in where their food comes from and, and what happens to it and how the people who produce it are treated and all that. It's, it, it just necessitates that a person has to be much more conscious about what it is they're doing and why it is they're doing it. Right. You have to really think, you know, uh, well, I really like these, but you know, I wish I had more of these because these are a better sort of uh, hardy crop that I can like, uh, not hardy, but like they store better or like say a potato, that kind of thing. Like, cause when you're talking about too, when uh, people are growing food to eat, right. You got to kind of consider uh, tomatoes are great, but what are they for calorie wise? Right. And if you're looking at being sustenance versus like, you know, what's nice. And these are all questions that you start to ask when you start looking at how do I make sure I can get my food. And especially right now, it really highlights a time where, as you pointed out, food security right now is not a problem because we have a, a, a huge global food chain that works pretty well, actually miraculously well. I mean, considering the logistics of how, uh, like, let's say, for example, in Canada, one thing we export a lot of is canola seed oil, right? We ship that all the way across the whole world and it happens all the time and really, you know, you don't have to even think about it. But now we're seeing with like, say, a conflict going on over in Russia or the Ukraine with Russia, um, you know, we're starting to see that, you know, there's potential shortages and there's other countries now that are getting scared because, I mean, I think I, I look at the same thing that's going on, too. And I worry, you know, th this could potentially turn into a bigger conflict. Right. And so you have to really consider, OK, if that happens, we have Russia, which is a huge wheat grower. We have Ukraine, which is a huge wheat grower. We have China, which is really big. And uh, India, I think. I think it's India might be one of the biggest, if not the biggest. I think India is number two. And then it might be United States, Canada, and then Russia or Ukraine, one of the two. But it's like those are the top five providers, right? Yeah. And you look at how a lot of people are sort of holding their stock back right now. Like China is holding on to a lot of their wheat. So is India. They're not looking at selling any to the global market this year. And there's you no, know, a lot of other uh, countries in the world now have to worry, like, you know, where's my grain coming from? And, you know, in a place like Canada, where we have so much beautiful land, you know, I kind of wonder sometimes, like, you know, why don't we grow stuff here? Because then if something like that happens, unfortunately, you know, history shows us that stuff does happen. Well, then we can still provide for the people that are here, right? And then not have to sort of sacrifice the standard of living. And then doubly, it does the effect of not having to ship grain all the way across the world, which is, you know, if, if fossil fuels are really bad and killing the environment, then shipping this food all over the place doesn't make a whole lot of sense. You know, like, I wonder, I wonder how much, um, like, how much we could reduce, say, carbon with using almost identical practices we use now, but just doing more localism, right? Like just having more locally produced food. And I imagine that would have a huge effect, right? And then we could kind of mitigate what we're going through right now, where basically people are having trouble paying for fuel to go to work or to heat their house. Because on one hand, we have really steep taxes, which are basically, I think, trying to push people in the direction of making more green decisions, which I mean, 
I can see the thinking behind it, but the problem is, is it's, it's a lot of pain and suffering we're putting on the population here. And I wonder sometimes if maybe a better solution is actually producing locally, and then we can sort of cut down on our emissions that way. Have you given that much thought or do you have any thought on that? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think in terms of like the what the what the pandemic really did and and these conflicts are doing is really is really shining a light on on how uh, how fragile the the food system is in 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 Canada and Big Turtle. Like we are so reliant on um, you know and and uh, I you know respect respect these people so much, but the people who come from different countries to come and grow our food for us every year. Like in Ontario alone, we have something like 20 or 25,000 migrant workers that come from all over to grow our food, um, coming from you know, the global South um, largely and from uh, Jamaica and different places. And so they leave their families for like seven to eight months a year to come and do like the hardest labor here and get paid nothing. And you know, there, there's so many issues with the temporary um, worker program here um so so when covid hit you know uh the different migrant workers couldn't come or they were delayed because they couldn't travel and so i don't know if you guys saw it i saw it on my end but on instagram and facebook i started seeing all these pop-up ads like from the government being like we're looking for farm workers like consider coming into the labor force doing farm work um and so so that was like uh you know, a huge eye opener and, and something we talk about a lot in the National Farmers Union here and Ecological Farmers Association of Ontario. It's that, you know, the succession of, of people coming up and, and, and farming is, I think it's something like 11% of the farmers in, in Canada are under 55, 11%. Mm-hmm. So who who's going to replace that that workforce? You know, the other thing is, you know, think really thinking about the food system and if annual agriculture is what we're going to keep doing here. Because I think you know, we there's so much you know the forest provides so much food and our lakes when they're healthy provide so much food and um, you know there's a there's a, a resurgence of indigenous food sovereignty and indigenous um, food movements um, and land management and stewardship. Uh, happening right now too which you know we're we need to learn so much all of us and uh, become more resilient just have a more resilient food system overall so definitely the the you know focusing on on trying to feed people closer to home makes a lot more sense in terms of everything in terms of how everyone's treated and our carbon footprint and our water use and everything like that like Sophia mentioned earlier, there's lots of stuff that kind of grows in the forest. Like, um, and we, we learned this too, especially talking to uh, Ugly Barn Farm where like, you know, they harvest mushrooms and they'll go out and scavenge for them. And um, Kayla, Kayla's flowers there, she did the same thing too. Cause that's a thing we had at uh, Nowhere Public House there a little while ago. We had these fiddleheads, they were pickled and that's a natural harvest thing. So yeah, um, yeah. what can you tell us about natural harvest and uh uh, maximizing the use of the beautiful land we already got here. Yeah, well, uh, I've actually learned um, so much um, throughout the years uh, working, uh, doing some garden education in Antikmikshing Anishinaabek, um, and then also, you know, just learning so much. It's like a reciprocal, um, you know, knowledge, knowledge sharing. 
Um, but uh, there's a, a scholar named uh, Lila June Johnson, um, and she's Diné and Cheyenne and, uh, you know, and European, and she's in the New Mexico area, but she's studied um, uh, in depth, like different indigenous food you know, systems and, and uh, farming methods from all over the world. Um, and, uh, you know, sh she's just a fascinating person. Her, she has a podcast down. I've heard her interviewed on a few different podcasts, but she talks about, you know, these deep relationships to, um, to land that, that uh, Indigenous people have. And, you know, our answer, ancestors had, you know, my Celtic ancestors had these same deep, deep connections to the land and, and managed forests in a way that, you know, things were thriving with, with food and for all the different creatures. And, um, you know, all of our ancestors have that, have that link to, to the land. Um, so those links are just more intact for, for uh, different, different First Nations and Indigenous people on Turtle Island, um, you know, of course, the colonial um, violence has has tried its best to eradicate that connection, but certainly hasn't been successful um, uh, in a lot of ways. So, so those connections remain, and um, so there's very sophisticated ways of of managing land, um, and you know that you know you can under, only really understand if if you are from that from that specific place and understand the ecology and the systems at play. But uh, in terms of, you know, edible forest gardens and, and food forests, um, you know, the idea there is, is mimicking uh, an intact forest system. Um, and, but you're sort of designing, you can design it to, so you're mimicking like the layers of the forest um, you know, so there's, you know, depending on who you're talking to, they'll say, you know, there's seven to 11 layers of the forest. So you're talking about the root system and um, like a shrub and herbaceous layer. And then, you know, what you think about grows at your waist height and your shoulder height and your head. And when you look up, you know, you, there's all these layers of the forests um, and there's, you know, there's food at all of these these levels and medicines, um, you know, just in an, in an unmanaged um, environment and or you can design them to be a managed environment. And so, uh, so, you know, you can, you can plan to have, you know, asparagus at the root area and strawberries at the ground cover area and then, you know, blueberries and has caps and currants in your shrub layer and, um, you know, apples and, and uh, cherry plums and cherries at your, you know, sort of shoulder head height. And then you can plant pears, which get really huge at your, you know, the canopy level. Um, but yeah, there's such abundance just all around us. And if we learn how to identify these different, you know, these different plants and trees and medicines, um, there, there's a lot of resilience in, in those perennial systems that we don't have to disrupt the soil every year to plant plant things and and sort of the shift you know at the urban farm we're we're pretty heavy on the annual vegetable production but uh you know we just we had a group of 30 Lockerbie students come out last week and they planted asparagus and uh we are we're gonna work with Phil from uh, Beautiful Field Farms he was actually at the farm this morning came out and said he'd help us put in a food forest uh in the fall time so he's gonna put in some apple trees there. And so we're gonna start shifting a little bit to, to some perennial 
food production as well like we've got perennial onions you know walking onions they come back every year and Jerusalem artichokes sunchokes like those make a nice tuber uh, instead of a potato and uh and stuff like that so I'm kind of going on a tangent here but uh yeah like perennial perennial like agroforestry systems are like probably our best bet I'd say going forward because you don't need to water them constantly and mm -hmm. you're not disrupting the soil and you know these things just sort of come back on their own and yeah well and that kind of reminds me of like something that you sort of touched on early in the beginning that made me think of something and it was um this idea of uh, I think it was re-ruralization was, was what it was called or it was de-urbanization one of the two but the idea behind it being that you start to do what you've sort of done on some levels, you start to reintegrate the farmland in the urban scape and you sort of make it basically less urban and more rural in a way. And that's where you're going to have, like, say, lots that aren't being used. You're going to turn those into a place where you can grow food and do stuff like that. And I think that idea makes a lot more sense. I think it makes a lot more sense. In a, in a bunch of ways, one being that you're closer to the food Two, you're making better use of the land. Three, I just learned this recently that apparently cities have a warming effect because there's so much concrete and metal and all that kind of stuff that basically, and it makes sense once you hear it, it's a total heat sink, right? So apparently in some cases, if I'm remembering this right, people could grow a whole climate zone above the climate zone they actually lived in and sometimes even, uh, even above, another one above, just by living in the city because of the amount of heat. And so, I mean de-urbanizing in a way if you're putting more plant life in there you know you're going to cool down the cities a little bit which I think sounds good too because the idea is the globe's getting too warm right and then it I, I wonder too like if it also has the effect because one thing I get concerned about a lot too in our modern culture is that we're sort of replacing uh real human interaction with like technology and it's it's like it's a facsimile it's very close but it's not the same thing it's like like we, when we were talking to um uh zoe a little while back there and we were talking about like you know when you get really in a flow in a conversation with somebody it like i mean it, it can happen here online too when we're talking to each other but it's much more apparent when you're in that room with somebody like say you're having coffee right across the table from somebody and you know you really it like changes your whole your perception like you sort of like people will say like you know it, it changes time in a way like you'll be talking for a long time and you're like where'd the time go like oh my goodness right and so i wonder also too if if we start to re-ruralize or de-urbanize let's say our living spaces in in the cities if it wouldn't also maybe pull us outside more if it wouldn't pull us outside because well, i mean outside would need to have a little more attention because they were trying to grow food there but also just maybe there's more going on. And I, I wonder that I, I think that would have like a good effect too. Do you, do you get sort of that idea with that as well? Or. I, yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I understand what you're saying. Like, uh, you know, the more, the more spaces that we can gather in collectively, um, you know, the better and, uh, and, and um, the, the food movement offer offers that a lot. We've got, more than I think we've got more than 38 community gardens in Sudbury so we have 12 wards but we have way more community gardens than we do wards and so if you're you know and all of these community gardens are pretty active 
you know, and they have work bees every so often. And when, when you're at one of them, you know, there might be 30 to 50 people out at these gardens coming together and growing food and, and, and making those connections. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, absolutely. Like the more, the more we're together, working together, the better I'd say. And, and yeah, the food movement offers that uh, urban agriculture offers that because, because people want to learn, you know, they want to learn together and they want to come together and make change. And I think that's what some of the coolest stuff that happens is like when you have one of these work bees, like for instance, at Delki Dozy on Saturday, we had a global gardens work bee at, at, at Delki Dozy. And I, I just couldn't believe the work that got done, you know, in like two and a half hours, because there's, you know, 15 or 20 of us, that's like 40 hours of labor. <laughs> Mm-hmm. right and it's and you're like you know the the stuff that just gets accomplished when we work together is just like so so fascinating and and uh, hopeful and you can't you you have to see it to believe to be believe it and, and remember and that's the whole thing too it's like farms were never supposed to be like one or two people farming it was families you know it was communities and villages like managing these these uh, areas all together um because it's it's so much labor especially if you're not using a ton of mechanization and you're not using herbicides and fertilizers and and uh, huge irrigation irrigation systems like especially if you're trying to produce your own fertility like composting that's mm-hmm. that's a labor of love too so yeah, the more people can come together and, and uh, vibe off each other is uh, certainly great. And people are craving that more than ever now. I mean, we were lucky that, uh, you know, the gardening was considered essential during the pandemic. So we were still allowed to be in the gardens. There were some like limits on how many people could gather. And, you know, we were still masking up and stuff, but we were still, that was a, a, a godsend uh uh, creator send <laughs> um, in a huge way because people could still be together outside and, and grow this food and you know and I think what you're saying too like the connection between people seem uh, when you're in person with someone like that connection you can feel it well it's the same with food like if you go to the grocery store and you buy carrots or you like planted the carrot seed and like weeded it for 75 days and then harvested it you know like that connection to the food exists there too so it kind of it's all full circle there mm-hmm. yeah. yeah and then like uh make me think of two things but one thing in particular like it reminds me of the stories i'd hear from her parents about Curaya, which is the little village where they're from and it's a very small farming village in portugal and they would talk about like when it was harvest time, like they, the whole community was like, all right, this week we're going to be down at Chico's house. And then we're going to be down at so-and-so's house. And then we're going to so-and-so's house. And it was like, they'd go there, they'd work, they'd harvest any, everything. And then like, say the women would show up later and they'd have like a whole bunch of food cooked up for everybody and stuff. Cause everybody works there. Right. And even when you go there now too, like, cause it's an older community, it's pretty much only old women that live there now. Cause men typically don't live longer than women. Um, but you go there and all those women, they're still working. Yeah. They're still working. And they're, and they're like older where like people here kind of decide that's it. I'm done working. Like, I remember when we went to, uh, her Tia's house there, her aunt's house and like everything we ate there was like stuff she grew. She was out there gardening all the time and all that kind of stuff. And everything we eat the whole time there was all like stuff that people made. And it was cool too, because someone says like, you know, 
oh, here's here's my wine. You got to try my wine. Or here's some of the fruit I saved from this or whatever. What did my grandma tell you when you tried to help her? Oh, right, right. So her grandmother, how, how old was she at the time? 87? Uh, 84 when we were there. 84. So her grandmother's 84 and she worked like hard, hard on the farm for her whole life. And so she gets around kind of slow and stuff like that. And so anyways, uh, Sophia says, go, go help a vole out with uh, grabbing some wood. So I'm like, all right, yeah, no problem. So we go to the woodshed and she like, I'm loading up a couple or whatever. And then she's loading me up. She grabs one. I'm like, oh, oh, just give it to me. I got it. And she says, no. She says, if I don't work, I don't eat. <laughs> okay. Like, I don't earn my bread. Yeah, I don't <laughs> earn my bread, right? So she had that attitude where she's like, I can still walk. I can still work. And up until like just very recently, they were still out there all the time too, yeah. doing everything they need. Not everything they had to do. They still needed help, but still very, very active. Even just, uh, I remember being in Portugal in December and that's usually when they kill the pig. And again, everybody gets together. Everybody has a task. It's mm -hmm. it's always bringing the community together to do all those big chores like harvesting, yeah. anything like animals, produce, anything. Well, and that's making me think now too, parallel to what you're saying when you had these people get together for the uh, the global global garden, you called it? Global gardens, yeah. Yeah, okay, so for the global garden where everyone got together and all that work got done quick. I'm also thinking now, like you were just saying, everyone had a job, right? And so part of the community too is also knowing what your role is in the community, right? And formalizing it sort of in that way is good too, because it's it's really good to have like freedom and sort of ability to float around and do a lot of stuff, but it's also good to have that sort of structure. And so when you get together, it's like people just say, all right, you know, we're at your farm, you're the boss, what do you want me to do? And they say, all right, grab a shovel, go here. And you say, all right, and then you go, right? Yeah. So like that makes me think too that that might be uh, another important part of building community is actually having like a joint physical thing to do together, like say working the land or whatever the case might be. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I think, you know, that sense of belonging is uh, so important in, in, in helping each other out and, you know, community is where is where we find resilience. Like that's what we need. And specifically to food it's true there's so much to do at harvest time like you can't you know pr like think about harvesting and then think about all the prep that goes into like canning and preserving and all that stuff we need all of it um yeah uh yeah the the, the with global gardens i think you know we're going to be exploring exploring how the group is going to operate a little bit because we we are sort of lacking the clear leadership that because Amir and Hamina had to move away uh sorry yeah I don't know if I said that Amir and Hamina had to move away so they were like you know helping to to lead it um but we they they moved to to Halifax so we were like do what do we do here you know are we going to keep going or whatever and so we have but we're going to start having conversations about about how to move forward together as a group and um, and where the leadership is going to be coming from, but also like you know decentralizing decentralizing the leadership a little bit too, meaning like there's less pressure on one person to do it all. Like mm -hmm. we could all co-lead, and we all have these different gifts and things to to uh, to bring to it. And so anyway, it's just kind of all that sort of you know moving around to the different farms, um, you know, in Portugal and helping out when the different things need to happen. Like that's also sort of decentralizing, um, you know, that and, 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 you know, there's strength, there's strength in the numbers and, uh, and, 
and and how the leadership is fluid like you know the person is leading at this farm but on this farm this other person's leading and like that's really cool too those systems those patterns um exist um i i was lucky enough to go to portugal right before covid hit i was there from january till february 2020 okay um and i I'd, I'd always wanted to go to portugal um because the food you know that was like really the first food that got me really excited about food because I just you know my dad is from Scotland he grew up in the in World War II um and uh in Glasgow and so you know our and my dad was actually like the main cook in our family and he you know I love him thank you so much for cooking for me you know of course I'm grateful for that but the flavor was like boiled you know boiled meat or like yeah, you know yeah. salt was like the that's what the flavors that we had in our family and so when I tasted Portuguese food when I first moved to Toronto I was like what is this like what is this oh my gosh um just amazing so I finally had enough money to go somewhere and so I went to Portugal um, and uh, traveled you know to Lisbon and Porto and to the Algarve and those areas and what I loved about that too was just like they're so they're so much more relaxed about food you know it's like a, a, an old man can sit on the corner and sell eggs out of a bucket you know and uh not every you know your eggs don't have to be refrigerated and there's men you know waiting after the bar with just like coolers of sandwiches like like attached to their bodies and you can just go get sandwiches that they made at home to like yeah. eat and it's your choice it's your choice on yeah. if you want to risk eating this sandwich or buying these eggs or whatever so there's so much more um freedom in terms of like there's there's more, I'd say more food sovereignty uh, in Portugal in that way because uh, you know they're not being there's less uh, there's less regulations and and uh, strict preventative I suppose I don't know you know well that that really struck me when I was there too and the impression I came away with was like to me in Portugal it felt like the government was like you guys are grown ups figure it out you know like all right yeah. That food come from a farm. You know the farmer? No? All right. Well, maybe that's a risky thing, but you're a big boy or a big girl or whatever, you know, like you can yeah. figure it out. And I kind of like that. And then because you do get more food sovereignty. And it, it, it was cool because every little place you go to in Portugal, even though there's a Portuguese flavor, let's say, like in, there's a sort of culinary style, but every little community has got something particular about them. Like, for example, when we went to uh, Lisboa, there was the Tour de Belém. When we went to Tour de Belém? Yeah, Tour de Belém. Tour de Belém had like these, these beautiful, uh, if you went to Portugal, you would have had them. The, I went there. Uh, I walked the there. Yeah, yeah, I walked there to go get those specific uh, pastiche de Belém. Natas. Natas and Natas, yeah. Oh. Yeah, and so like there's all these, sorry? Oh, it was so good. But, yeah. <laughs> the best thing and that's the cool thing is there's all these cool little flavors in these little communities and like we went to tomar too like we went to a restaurant there and they had a cool thing going on and it was similar but it's all a little bit different we were at a restaurant in guimarães oh yeah and jordan ordered a sandwich and he's like no no you don't want that you want this one <laughs> yeah yeah and that i like too because the the dining experience was totally different too where like you would get a waiter who would tell you that and but then he would say it in such a way where he's like like it was basically if I didn't like it then it was like that's my problem because this this is the better sandwich right like he was like you want to have a good time you want to have some good food 
that's what you get. And so it was cool because it felt like when you went to go eat somewhere, it was like sort of an experience, right? Like it was more of a journey where like, I, I fall into the habit, like I like hamburgers, right? So I'll have a hamburger, I'll have some other kind of sandwich. When I was there, I would have like, um, uh, not torsta mishta, but the bifana. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd have like the bifana, right? Like I just really like that. So that's what I have all the time. So it was kind of safe. And so I picked that one thing on the menu that was sort of like that. And he's like, no, 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 you want this other one. This is, this is the next step up. But anyways, all that to say, um, the cool thing about that, it makes me think like in Sudbury, and we talked about this with Rochelle from Seasons, you know, what's the flavor of Sudbury? And it's really cool because we went to just uh, Nowhere Public House there. And it was cool because they had a lot of stuff that was from the area. And so you get to, you start to get a little taste of what Sudbury is and what it's mm-hmm. like. And, you know, it's, it's cool. And I also see that as another thing that we can sort of cohere around as, let's say, Sudburyans, right? Because there was a, an author I remember reading one time who was talking about subjective identity. And that like when, once you sort of pick a subjective identity, it really alters the whole way that you perceive and interact with the world around you because you've sort of picked a viewpoint, right? And so I always think about that and I think, what's a way that that sort of natural human mechanism can be used for a good, right? And I, I like that idea of localism because then you could have people in Sudbury be like really proud of Sudbury beer or really proud of Sudbury bread or whatever the case might be. And we can kind of come together as Sudburyans around our food and around how we grow our food and have a pride in that, right? Well, even when we were at Nowhere Public House, Bill said, hey, if you're here for a burger, go down the street. <laughs> like, that's not what we're here for. You know, we're going to serve you local food. And that's kind of what we're talking about, right? Is the flavor of Sudbury trying to figure that out. And Nowhere Public House is doing a good job of that. Oh, they're amazing. They're so, they're so supportive of the food system here. And um yeah, like when you go sit, I was just there this afternoon, actually. And like, I just love it because uh, Peter, Peter's one of the servers there. And he always makes sure to like, whatever you're getting, he's like, this is from there. That's from there. Like, and down to the sauces, like the honey on this apple chip is from here. And this apple is from over here. And uh, yeah, it's, it's like a, a lovely little, little journey when you're eating there. And I just have to shout them out so much because they did such a beautiful thing last year for the urban farm youth. Um, we we harvested a, a bunch of food and brought it to nowhere. And they, for absolutely free, prepared us like these di- like dishes, like several multiple like things um, out of all of this food. And then like we, the youth, we all went there. I think last year we had 16 youth. So we all went down and sat, sat down and they served it to us for absolutely free. So they, the youth got to like harvest the food and then sit down and see it like, not just like cooked, but like made into a culinary beautiful thing and like presented, like plated up and served to them. And like, I think they were tasting things they'd never tasted before you know and they were actually like eating the vegetables and seeing what could what could happen like that transformation so yeah they're uh they're amazing people for sure and they're supporting um there's another um awesome uh initiative uh in a tigmik shanganishnabek so manado baneshi dreams it's a, a food sovereignty space and collective arts space and it's um, just sort of emerged since the pandemic too. Um, Manado Baneshi, who's the person running it, she lost her job in like film and television. I don't want to tell her story, but anyway, so she she lost it because of the pandemic and then just started investing time and 
money and energy into developing this space. So gardens were put in and um, she's planted like all sorts of fruit trees and uh, starting to make that also a space where people can come together and learn from each other and learn the history of a Tikmikshing territory as well. Like, you know, the, the community itself, um, you know, the, the people were displaced multiple times, not just once until they, they ended up in where they are now. Um, but it's a, a beautiful, beautiful community. And um, uh, yeah, I just encourage people to go check that out too. But uh, yeah, Nowhere Public House is like bringing her food in and we're eating some of that too when you're there. So that's what's so nice. It's like, you know, the food is, is truly from here and it's supporting all sorts of people doing this mm -hmm. good work. And it also makes me think too, like the experience for that, that group of youth coming in there and being able to eat all their food prepared in like a delicious way. Like I, I know the first time, like we planted our asparagus three years ago and we finally got to harvest it this year. And like the first time having, it, I was like, that's some good asparagus. <laughs> like, and it was, I don't know. It's just, it's, 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 well, no, it's not silly. Cause I got a positive emotion out of it and it felt good and it's good to grow your own food, but like, that, that was really awesome. And I, I think about that too, as being like a, a possible inroad too, to building self-esteem and resilience in our youth. Right. And especially now coming out of like a very mentally trying time, or maybe still going through a very mentally trying time. That's exactly what we need to have collectively. And especially for our youth, who's going to be the next generation, right? They're, they're the people who will take over eventually after, you know, we're done doing whatever we're doing to the degree that we're sort of controlling things or helping move things along, whatever. But that, that's, that's one thing. So like you, you must, you must get to see then really kind of firsthand what sort of effect that has on youth. And, and so what, what can you speak to say, let's about, about the, the experience that the youth comes in with, can you notice a market change in sort of how they think about things or uh, yeah, I guess can you go on that. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, just even the, the group of students were, I'm sort of working with from Lockerbie, I've been going into grade nine geography class and, and talking to them about the food system. And, you know, for a lot of them, the classroom isn't, you know, where their, where their strengths lie, like sitting at a desk in that environment is not where their strengths lie, but they come out to the farm, which we, they did on Friday, and they're like moving wheelbarrows and wheelbarrows full of soil and digging and shoveling and like, interested in like the plants uh you know and interested in the bugs and paying attention to nature and uh so so that um you know it does help their self-esteem to be like hey like maybe you're not doing so well in grade nine geography but if you're at this farm look look how much work you guys got done like they they got done they did so much work you know and there and there's like a sense of pride that comes with it like you know the youth will you know, if they spend an hour weeding a carrot bed, that the results are instant. They, they stand up and they're like, oh, I can see all the carrots now, you know? And uh, so it's like sort of instant gratification in those ways. And that I think that is really nice for the youth sometimes, um, you know, when they're not so used to those, those kinds of things. But I think a lot of the youth um, just, just kind of say like being outside, it's like being outside, for, you know, you know, they're working 15 hours a week, but it's 15 hours a week that they're guaranteed to be outside and they're with their hands in their soil and they're down, they're at the, 
you know, the level of the bees and the bugs and the spiders and, um, and these different plants and the seeds blowing in the wind. And uh, I think it just offers like such a, a different perspective than maybe what they've been exposed to at that point. Um, so yeah, and then I think this just idea and understanding of the food system, we really try to educate them there. And so they seem to, you know, care, really care at the end, like, you know, about, about those, the food system and, all of the things that are entrenched in that. Um, so yeah, I think, uh, I, I hope it's impactful. It seems to be impactful. Um, you know, the youth want to come back uh, every year. If we were able to hire them back every year, like all of them every year, I feel like a, a huge majority of them would want to keep coming back and, and doing it. And uh, so, you know, we rely on funding and we rely on these wage subsidies. So it's kind of a one-off and that's too bad. But uh, if they get exposed to it, then maybe they know like College Boreal has an agriculture program and Guelph has an agriculture program, Fleming, Trent, like um, uh, like what was, uh, well, X University. I don't, it has a new name now. I don't know what it is. Um, and, uh, you know, there's all of these, these new, you know, light bulbs that might go off in their brain to be like, hey, like I can go into botany, I can go into horticulture, I can go into food and farming. And, and if I can make it through high school, you know, I can, I can get there or they don't have to, they don't have to go to post-secondary, they can start working interning at farms, you know, right away. Or even just starting a garden in their backyard, right? Like that's, yeah. that's a step ahead for sure. Yeah. Well, even then too, like talking about the idea of post-secondary, like I know, um, I don't, I don't know if you're about our age there, like I'm about 30 and Sophia's a little younger than I am, but I know I'm when I'm older, <laughs> Oh, you're older. Okay. Um, but I know, I know for sure. Like when we were going to school, there was a lot of pressure to really go to university. There was a lot, a lot of pressure. Right. And then especially thinking back to when you're mentioning, say a lot of the farming done in our country is done by migrant workers. And I wonder sometimes like, you know, if we put too much pressure on everybody to go to university when really someone would maybe be a lot happier working on a farm, like, you know, there, there are some people that love working on a farm. There's some people that love, but you know, when we try to sort of tell everybody, this is the model for success. And then they go and they try to, they feel like a round peg in a square hole or a square peg in a round hole, whichever the case might be, it doesn't fit is the idea. And, you know, it, it sucks because, culturally we're almost saying like you know you're a loser you know like you didn't you did you weren't good enough for university and we're not directly saying that but it's hard not to come away with that feeling right when and then especially in our culture too it's like we have this idea too where like everybody to be taken seriously at all has to have a degree or a or some sort of stamp of approval from some governing body of some kind and i mean don't get me wrong, that has its place. It's wonderful to have a system that has some sort of regulation so you can have something you can sort of re rely on relatively. But I, I always remember back home, and because I'm from a small town, like I always mentioned, there were people back home who didn't finish high school and were smart like you wouldn't believe. Now, they couldn't tell you what Homer was talking about in the Iliad. They didn't know anything about Foucault. But if you took a motor and put it in front of them, they could take the whole thing apart, figure out what was wrong with it and put it back together before it was lunch. And, you know, and they just, they just knew that stuff. 
And there's a lot of kids that I think are probably just like that guy. Like, you know, they probably need, I, I would say maybe in high school, we had to do a little bit better job of teaching people basic stuff. Like, you know, how to balance a checkbook and all that kind of stuff, like real basic. This is how you have to be an adult in our society. But then after that, I mean, trades are awesome. Agriculture is awesome. And, and these are all things that maybe because of our, our prosperity as a culture, we've sort of grown to look down our nose at these essential service jobs that are cornerstone pillars. Like when they say salt of the earth, it's like, it's cause it's an essential mineral. Like you need these people. And you know what? We should have dignity afforded to these people who are gonna go out and work hard and do these jobs. And so that's beautiful that you're basically providing an opportunity for people to come into contact with that and realize that. And not only are they learning real skills to put into work in the real world, growing their own food, but you also mentioned they're learning a little bit about the market. So they're learning a little bit about business, how that works. And so if they want to go and become someone who's an entrepreneur or something like that, that's awesome. And I love that idea because I love seeing people become resilient and independent and strong. And like, that's, again, going back to why we got into this is because I see more and more we want to rely on a sort of centralized power, our state government, to really take care of us. And that's not to say that there aren't good problems, sorry, problems, uh, programs that exist in, in there and all that kind of stuff. There, there, there is great stuff and it serves its place, but we're becoming a little bit complacent. And, and what you're doing, I think, is it, the first, second, maybe third step on the road back to giving people back their own autonomy, their own agency, because it's really a matter of you got to go out and you got to do the work and you got to get going on it. You got to learn stuff because the only person that's going to be able to save you or take care of you, is the person looking back at you in the mirror. And so it's, it's a wonderful, beautiful thing that you're doing there. And, and it sounds like you're making some inroads there. Um, we're getting close to the end of our interview here. So if there's anything else you'd like to say in closing for anyone to like get a hold of you or uh, understand the program a little better, could you share that with us? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I'm just taking in everything you're saying too. And um, just wanting to say there's, a, there's this amazing book called Emergent Strategy by Adrienne Marie Brown. And she talks about, you know, uh, well, you hear about it in social permaculture as well, but, you know, like designing, de designing um, our societies, like doing biomimicry, like designing our social structures based on what exists in nature. And like, nothing is there's no monocultures in nature there's so much diversity in nature and so that you know has to do with what people are doing with their careers and lives and what they do after high school if they're finishing high school and there's no shame in like having these different gifts and intelligences and you know like when we're farming we're also like being biologists and physicists and uh, mathematicians and business people, you know, like it encompasses all of that. And it's the same with the mechanic um, in terms of getting a hold of us. So the Flour Mill Community Farm, uh, we've got a Facebook page. We have an Instagram account. The email is flourmillcommunityfarm at spcsudbury.ca. And maybe we can link it in the show notes. And it's flour mill, like F-L-O-U-R, mill, not flour. <laughs> um and uh yeah like global gardens also has a, a facebook page it's global gardens and swakamak sudbury um and an instagram as well and uh yeah i just 
wanted to thank you guys uh, so much for doing this podcast. You're a really crucial link in the food system here. Like that's what this is becoming. And so just want to thank you so much for, you know, doing this because no one else is doing this and you're the first people to, to be doing this. Um, and uh, I'm so excited and yeah, I hope I'm really excited to keep listening and listening to the rest of your episodes. I've listened to a few and to listen to the upcoming ones. And then hopefully maybe we can turn the table and we can interview you guys. Because <laughs> <laughs> I think that would be pretty cool. Yeah, it certainly would be. Uh, thank you. Yeah, All right, thanks thank you. Again.